Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, December 19th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 140 poets from 17 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Choi Wong. Hi, Choi. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hey, Imogen. Yeah, no problem. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, me too. You brought with you your poem, The Gardening Instinct. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Troy Wong. I'm an Asian-Australian writer and teacher. The area of Sydney that I live in is Daruk land, uh, which always has and always will be Aboriginal land, Mm -hmm. just to acknowledge that. And I've been involved in poetry for more years than I can really count now. It's it's a handful of years. Mm -hmm. I started when I was a university student. Mm -hmm. My friend at the time started a poetry slam in a mm-hmm. suburb nearby, mm-hmm. and I became a regular there. Uh, I did my first poetry there, and I ended up helping her run that slam and then taking it over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then during that time, I competed in the Australian Poetry Slam a couple times, mm-hmm. got as far as the national finals in 2015, mm-hmm. and after that, have I've continued on with my own projects and collaborations and the occasional poem getting published in a journal here and there. Mm-hmm. So it's been a really varied short career in poetry, but mm-hmm. um, it's been really nice. That's really cool. So your first ever poem that you've written was actually during this period in college? Yeah, that's right. So it was so at this poetry slam uh, at the time it was called mars hill slam because it took place in a cafe called mars hill Mm -hmm. and the prize there if you won the slam was that you do a feature set the next month Mm -hmm. so i was very lucky and i won my first slam with a series of sonnets that i'd actually written for a university assignment and that sort of catapulted me into immediately having to come up with 15 minutes of poetry (laughs) um it was a real sudden introduction into the world Mm -hmm. the sonnets that you had written for your poetry i guess college course were they written shortly before the slam or were they written sometime ago i mean i don't know where in your university life you actually started, joined the slam? It was in 2012, I believe, the end of 2012. Mm. So that was my second year of my five-year 
undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. I'd written those poems within the same semester, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was all pretty fresh, but I certainly hadn't written them for performance. I just thought, hey, I've already got poems, so let's just give these a go. <laughs> and yeah, one thing led to another. Wow, wow. And how many more poems did you have to write for the feature? I think I wrote three more. Okay, okay. How is... I think back at those poems now, and I don't have them anymore <sighs> due to various things crashing and getting lost. But mm. um, I certainly thought they were good at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, I, I tend to get very critical of my own work. I move on from old poems pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think from a writer's perspective, that's probably really good practice. Because you know, mm. we're always growing in, in our skill sets, I think. Do you remember if they were much harder to write than the sonnets? Or were they pretty much the same? Did they come easily? I think back to that early stage of being a poet, I feel like writing was so much easier back then. Um, I don't know if it's the same with you, but just not knowing where the boundaries were and mm-hmm. not having that really developed critical eye to mm-hmm. sort of know this is going to lead to something good, this is a dead end, this is what makes a good poem, this is what's cliche. So mm-hmm. just not knowing that allowed me to write things very readily. Mm. But at the same token, I think a lot of what I wrote back then was not very good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they were good enough to win a slam, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were. Yeah, I, I'm not sure for me if I maybe just never learned my lesson. Um, <laughs> and also, the latest stint of my poetry writing really is many years away from when I've got my literature degree, so I don't remember. And, and it, it wasn't concentrated in poetry either, so I don't remember from that to the latest stint what is cliché anymore or what is, you know, like, there are some things that are very obvious, right? At the same time, I think playing with cliches are also interesting. You can break them down. You can use them as a starting point and break them down and like form your own poems around them. So that's that's yeah. another way of uh, writing and breaking the boundaries of what is considered good poetry. Yeah, some of the most brilliant stuff I've read recently acknowledges a cliche and then does something different with it. Mm. And that's the dream, I think. I think that mix of familiarity and newness can make for a really great piece of art. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think it, it really allows the writer to kind of bring the reader along to say, hey, here's something that you think you've seen before. Now let me give you a new take on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You and I were just talking previous to starting our recording uh, about I think your current poetry practice. I don't know if you want to take us to that a little bit or did you want to read your poem first and then we can talk about that? I'm happy to talk about my practice first. So it took me probably two or three years since starting in the slam poetry world to figure out 
how to write a poem that was authentic to me. Mm-hmm. And the first step of that was just writing poems that were about me rather mm-hmm. than about something far off and separate to me. Mm-hmm. I think slam poetry especially is a genre where people assume that what you're saying is true or autobiographical. Mm-hmm. So I think I it took me some time to accept that that was just a feature of the form. Mm-hmm. So then I wrote poems about myself for about a year, mm-hmm. after which point I then started to explore poems that were more specifically about myself uh, in terms of my racial identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, I'm an Asian Australian man mm-hmm. and my practice where I am now is really about dialing into that identity, mm-hmm. what it means to genuinely belong uh, in Australia, but to be made to feel as if I do not belong mm-hmm. by cultural narrative, odd instance of racism here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what does it mean to be part of the diaspora in my specific place of Australia? Mm-hmm. Um, so most of my work these days explores different facets of that. Great, great. Reading this particular poem, I feel like it really does do a deep dive of your personal family history as well. And I think now is probably a good time for you to read that poem for us and then we can talk about it. Fantastic. This poem is called The Gardening Instinct. The soil outside the living room is cracked and dry when I move in. Fresh exile from the old place, I fled for its filth, the quiet violations, excuses I make for myself. My grandfather planted the gardening instinct in me years ago, though it's lain dormant until now. This ashy patch, dead as spent incense, is the catalyst the rainfall that draws the shoot from its shell. I work it out with a pitchfork, excavating shattered roof tiles and brick fragments like tumors from a gut. You need to clear out the detritus before you can sow. Unearth the past for the skip. Release the soil, even as it begins to swallow you feet first, even when you meet what can't be moved. The remains of the dead tree grown too close to a wall. My uncle's head locked underwater by my grandfather's hand to teach him how to swim. My mother disfigured by fear, a clump of carrots ruined by sharing soil with too many stones. Pieces the prongs of my fork discover but can't find the edges of to pry up. I wrestle until I'm wasted, squatting in the dirt amidst bent tools and seed packets. The neighbor's kids take a cautious interest, observe as I clutch at the dust with my grandfather's fists, the nest of rubble leaning in on me. Everyone has the gardening instinct, but this is how I remember my grandfather. Not with a stick of incense, wasting itself to chalk in the garden where he rests. 
but with a plot of soil, I turn out to yield beanstalks, cabbages, spring onions, fleshy leaves of my labor pushing up through me, my chest split open by perfect green swords that reach, despite everything, for the light. Thank you. Thanks. Ooh, this poem. I love how you weave in and out of reality and the memories of the family. I just want to make sure, is this uh, actually autobiographical? Yeah, every sentence in this poem is true. Mm, okay. When you were writing this poem, did you plan to go sort of in and out of metaphor? How do you decide mm. to write something that has an extended metaphor, such as this poem? The whole concept for this poem was to examine how aspects of my past and my family of origin continue to work and affect my life actively in mm -hmm. the present. Mm -hmm. So from that starting point, it quickly became clear to me that I needed to compress time and stack metaphors on top of each other in a very dense way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd recently discovered before writing this poem that that was one of the amazing things about the poetic form, that you can really condense things in a way that doesn't quite work in prose, at least not in my prose. So I started with the anecdote of my grandfather to mirror the experience of me starting my own garden in the present and just leaped into all the associated anecdotes and metaphors from there. Mm. I feel like the packet of poems that you sent me, right, they all are examining from different angles how your family, both within its own unit and also within the context of living as an Asian in Australia, shapes you as you and how it affects the way that you interact with people and you build your own future. So I wonder for you, what sets this particular poem apart from that? Mm, apart from the other poems that I've written that seem to have similarities? Yeah, yeah, because I feel like this has a different angle to it, right? And, but I wonder how you feel about that. Yeah, that's a great question. I think this poem is more reflective. I think this poem has more of a conclusion of acceptance, mm -hmm. whereas some of my other poems, and particularly my earlier ones on this topic, were angry mm -hmm. um, or were judgmental or critical. Mm -hmm. But in this poem, it was one of the first where I was able to acknowledge what was there in the past, the good and the bad, mm -hmm. and just let that be mm -hmm. and reach a conclusion that was authentic. That is to say, one in which the negatives are acknowledged, but I don't disregard the positives either. And that's where I land in the very last line where there's a metaphor of leaves that are reaching for the light. 
So there is light, but there's a there's a distance to go. There's an aspirational quality to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel that. I feel like it's despite everything, the there is growth. And even in the gardening metaphor itself, right, there is aspiration in it. And so, to me, it seems fitting that it should end on an aspirational note as well. And also seeing the growth coming out of the work that you've put into, the generations of work that was put into the nurturing of the family tree, as it were. Yeah, it's also a convenient metaphor in that sense of the cultivation over generations, something that started with my grandfather, continued in my parents' generation, and and now something that's in my hands. But I'll tell you what, I'm not a very good gardener. And um, (laughs) the garden that I described in this poem, I put a lot of work into it, Mm -hmm. and most of it ended up getting eaten by aphids. So I'm happy to feed the ecosystem, but uh, I don't know how my grandfather did it because I remember a very impressive garden Mm. of edible and non-edible plants growing up. Mm. And I've inherited his his passion for plants, Mm -hmm. but haven't quite developed the green thumb to his level yet. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. My mom tends to, uh, likes to have plants, and she apparently, according to her telling that her plants are doing well, whereas I can't even keep a cactus alive. (laughs) (laughs) I know that feeling. (laughs) And so I was wondering, when did you write this poem? Great question, because it's hard to remember. Um, (laughs) I may be getting this wrong. I think it was late 2019 and it was part of a set of poems that I was preparing for a headlining act uh, at a poetry slam. Mm. So this was written in a frenzy along with about four or five other poems that I quickly assembled into a live show. Oh, okay. Apart from that purpose, was there a particular incident that triggered this poem? This is a poem that I've been trying to write for years, Mm -hmm. ever since starting in the poetry slam scene. Mm -hmm. There was an inkling that I wasn't writing something authentic or or that really represented my own experience. Mm -hmm. So every time I return to this genre of poem, which I like to think of as family of origin, ethnic literature kind of poem, Um, and I say that in a somewhat sarcastic way, but every time I return to this genre, I I think of myself as my character in the poem does, just excavating a little more, just just unearthing a little bit more, and I don't know if I'll ever be done writing this genre of poem. I think I'll just keep finding more to say uh, every time I return to it. Okay. So digging into the meat of this poem some more, you mentioned at some point both your uncle and your mom, and there seemed to be some hint of traumatic incidents in the past. And I don't know if these are things that you've witnessed yourself or is family stories that you've heard. 
It's family stories. Mm-hmm. I'll start with my uncle. The line in the poem says, my uncle's head locked underwater by my grandfather's hand to teach him how to swim. So I first learned about this when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And my family is Chinese Singaporean. Mm-hmm. And so once every couple of years during the summer break, which in Australia is December, mm-hmm. we would fly back to Singapore, stay with a relative who still lives there mm-hmm. and do all that sort of visiting and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, my uncle who lived over there would take me to swimming pools mm-hmm. because I was not accustomed to the humidity of Singapore. So we'd always go to swimming pools when I was a kid in Singapore. And this Singaporean uncle told me that the younger uncle, who's the source of this anecdote in the poem, he won't go near water. He won't go near swimming pools because when he was a kid and my granddad, his father, was trying to teach him how to swim, Yeah, my granddad just got frustrated with him. You know, you're not learning fast enough. And, you know, you need to learn to put your head underwater and hold your breath. So as it says, he grabbed his head, put his head underwater, which is a horrific thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I definitely didn't know what trauma was or what abusive behavior was back then as a kid hearing the story for the first time. Mm -hmm. But knowing my younger uncle, who was traumatized by that, and getting more of a mature and more mature perspective and an understanding on that, it sort of made me realize, oh, these little instances and anecdotes of outrageous stuff like this can still see that in him in some way. Mm. Um, Not that he has a panic attack every time he goes near water, but there's just a timidity and there's just a mark there, I think, mm. when, when you know the story and you know what to look for. I see my uncle in the present and I go, oh, that makes so much sense. Mm. And then to reconcile that with the figure of my grandfather, who, you know, as a grandfather was very kind and was a very good patriarchal figure. Um, and was the head of the family in a very traditional way, but in a benevolent way. Mm. I think that anecdote, in a way, summarizes the complexities I'm trying to deal with in this poem of how do those things in the past figure in the present and what do you do with them when some of them are so terrible and yet some of them are very nurturing and good as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the thing about family members, right? Because especially as younger generations, we encounter these figures once they've become much older and maybe they've already uh, learned their lessons in life and they've become more nurturing because of that. Whereas, you know, from the generation above you, you your parents' generation and your uncle's generation, they're still trying to learn themselves how to be parents, like your grandparents. And, and so it's really interesting to see that come out of your poem, even though in, in some ways you lead us down those steps toward these uh, two imagery. It's still really shocking to he- see it or, or to hear it. Yeah, I sort of, I, I think of myself, you know, 
don't judge me for my actions one, two years ago. Like, I, I think I've become critical of my past selves um, as quickly as I've become critical of my past poems. So if I apply that same compassion to these family figure, figures, uh, as you said, um, yeah, at the time when these stories happened, they were still learning. And yeah, the, the grandfather I knew um, as my grandfather was hopefully a wiser man than the one who did this to his son, uh, mm -hmm. teaching him how to swim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you kind of look for that, right? Especially in this day and age with all of these um, stories of abuse, different sorts of abuse coming out uh, into the open of, of uh, more famous, well-known people. Mm -hmm. I think one of the unforgivable sins for the public is when people dig in their heels and refuse to say things like, well, I was wrong in what I did and I've learned my lesson and look at what I've done since then, all these actions that are counter to that particular action. Um, and, and so I, I don't know if your grandfather is still alive or, well, it seems like actually from this poem that he has since passed on. Yeah, he passed away actually around the same age I just mentioned. I think he passed away when I was 11 or 12. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Mm. Do you feel like in these poems where you are kind of digging into your family history, do you feel like in a way you are trying to ask him these questions? There's so much I would love to ask him. Mm -hmm. Um when he passed away, I was a kid who never thought about writing poetry mm. or analyzing my family of origin. Mm. And if he were alive today, I would absolutely want to know all his stories. Mm. Tell me about growing up. Tell me about your parents and your grandparents mm. because my living memory of my family only goes as far back as my grandfather's generation mm. i don't know anything about who came before him mm. so even just that i think i would love to know in detail and not just in the way that my parents' generation could tell me, like, have my auntie say, oh, yeah, your granddad's dad was so-and-so. Mm -hmm. But just with those personal anecdotes and that contain the minutiae mm -hmm. of, of basically the poem that I've written here, you know, what's that little story you remember? Mm -hmm. What's the image of that makes that's meaningful to you like the image of the garden for me mm. um i'd love to know that stuff but i i don't think i can access that anymore mm. Mm. given that the next image that you brought up immediately after the image of your uncle or what your grandfather did to your uncle do you talk with your mom about this poem in particular or those memories no i i don't talk to many members of my family regularly. Mm. Um, I, I don't really talk to my mom um, mm. these days. And it's another one of those things that's, uh, 
that I think I try to reckon with in my poetry. Mm. You know, and similar to my poetry, there was anger and there was critique and there was this and that when I was a bit younger. Mm. Now my relationship with my mother, I look at it more with acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, But, yeah, I keep my distance. And so when I say in the poem my mother's disfigured by fear like a clump of carrots that's grown with too many stones that's a compassionate way mm. of me conceptualizing who my mother is and why she is the way she is mm-hmm. um, and then i suppose the less compassionate side of the coin is looking at what's the impact of that fear on me growing up and my mother's fear being enacted on me and how does that work on me in the present as well as in the past? Mm. Um, but, yeah, the poem was about my grandfather, so I didn't want to go off on too much of a tangent with with my mum in the poem, mm-hmm. um, just to add the anecdote of my mother as a bit of texture and extra detail. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it, it does that. It achieves that aim, right? I- at the same time, because it follows immediately after the antidote that you basically summarize for the readers, for your uncle, it also leaves the readers to wonder if this is something that, if the fear came from your grandfather's hands as well. I don't know if other people have mentioned this aspect of the poem to you. Yeah. I leave that deliberately vague. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I mean, this is a look behind the curtain here, but I don't know much about my mother's relationship with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. I put those two images of the uncle and my mother there um, right next to each other so that the reader can kind of derive that implication that, yeah, maybe my grandfather's hands did have something to do with my mother's fear. But um, I don't know, and the reader doesn't know definitively, but I think... Uh, in the story of the poem, the implication is very clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In your other poems, because I have the privilege of seeing a pack of your poems, and I think in your some other ones, you actually explore more that relationship, which obviously for you as a person is much more central than, well, at least to me, you tell me your relationship with your grandfather. Definitely. It was not a coincidence that this poem, The Gardening Instinct, is one of the first I was able to write um, in this genre of the family mm-hmm. because I think we start from the outer and we work our way in. Yeah. So the grandfather relationship for me is less emotionally complicated mm-hmm. and I've progressively fought inch by inch and I've found ways to write about family members that are a little closer to my heart Mm -hmm. but um those central figures of my mom and dad they're still very hard to write about um Mm -hmm. at least to write good poems about because I can write one-dimensional poems or poems that are not fair poems that are not totally honest I can write those angry poems Mm -hmm. if I want to tap into that anger but I don't think those are good poems because they don't necessarily serve me and they don't serve anyone who might read them. Mm. Um, They're not reflective enough 
in the way that the gardening instinct is reflective. Mm, mm, mm. Do you write them anyway? I used to.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got. There's an old collection of poems I did maybe five years ago that was all about my dad.、Mm. And none of those poems were in the packet of poems that I sent you、mm-hmm. um, because I don't think they hit the mark. I don't think they were honest enough.、Mm. There are a couple poems about my mum that are similar.、Mm. I've put them away just because I don't think they really work.、Mm. So, in terms of Where I go next with my writing, I think that's possibly the direction, but it's not going to be the same kind of poem that the gardening instinct is.、Mm-hmm. I think I have to find another route to get to those subjects. Right, right. I think that's the difficult balance to achieve. Right, to write on a level. Where you have、um, an audience in mind, and also to write what you feel like you need to get out of what's inside yourself.、Mm. There's a poet who I absolutely idolize. He's from Texas. His name's Bill Moran.、He、used to come to Australia and do a tour of the poetry slams annually.、Mm. One of the best things I learned from him is that you can take your listeners or your readers down this tunnel into this traumatic journey and these memories,、mm-hmm. but you also owe it to them to bring them out of that at the end in some way. It's the responsible thing to do as a performer, but I also think it just makes better art to、mm-hmm. have a catharsis and a light side at the end. So, in some poems like this one, I try to have that whole journey contained within the poem.、Mm. But I definitely think about that advice from Bill Moran. Whenever I'm putting a set of poems together, how do I take them down into the depths and then get them back out so that they're okay、um, by the time they walk out the door? Mm. Mm. Well, I think you you are much more responsible. As an artist who's very aware of the impact of his words,、mm. than some others who, and I think everybody has their own niche, right, and has their own comfort zone. We're also in different timelines because, especially family trauma, as you know, this <laughs> is very difficult、mm. to get through and get to the point where we're not just angry. Absolutely. Yeah, got to get. You got to feel the anger, but you you've got to get through that in your own time. Yeah, and then that's where the interesting stuff happens. I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. And I, I think again, depending on the poet and where they are in their life, they may not do that in their poetry. And some of them never get over the angry stage.、Mm-hmm. Part of it is that there's no. You know, you, you are separated from your mother, but、um, mm. for some people, they are either physically not separated or emotionally not separated, or both. And, and I think、mm. when that is the case, it's very difficult to gain the psychological distance to have the 
the calm and <laughs> to really reflect on that and really to come around and, and be able to look at the situation from a much more emotionally removed point of view. Yeah, when you're in that space, you you can't really think of anything else because it's so immediate. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's no coincidence that I was only able to become more reflective once I moved out of home and mm -hmm. got that physical distance. I think that's a milestone where my writing about these kinds of things became a lot better because mm -hmm. I did have that distance. Mm -hmm. And I can't denounce that genre of angry poem because it's cathartic for the writer mm -hmm. and the performer, nothing else. And I've done heaps of those poems and mm -hmm. they were beneficial for me. Mm -hmm. If they didn't help my audience, well, that's too bad, but I think I needed to express those things at some point on my personal journey and my poetry journey. Mm -hmm. So people need to do that. Good for them, because I've benefited from that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think there there is an audience for both, right? There, There's the audience who tap into the angry poems and, and maybe there it helps them with their own journeys. And then there are the audience who are preferred to, and then they, there's overlap between the two as well. Yeah. I don't know how much interactions you have with your audience. And do you see a difference between the crowds who consume your previous poetry to your current poetry? Absolutely. So much. Really? So much. So the majority of my work is live performance. Mm -hmm. And what I've gotten a lot better at doing in recent years is reading the faces of the crowd and reading the vibe of the room. Mm -hmm. And there is absolutely a difference between the stage in my performance where things were very angry mm -hmm. and where I am now, where I'm hyper-conscious of bringing people on a journey with me and taking care of them emotionally to make sure that they're okay after. Mm -hmm. um, it took me too long to realize that story needs to bring people on that journey. And I spent so many poetry slams just saying words at the crowd mm. and not allowing them a way in to, mm. to come with me into the story. So with that new vantage point of, okay, how do I allow the audience to participate? How do I make sure there's a stepping stone for every single person in the crowd mm. and a safe way out after? I get a lot more people who do have that cathartic experience. I get a lot more people who do come up to me after and say thank you or they, they talk about a line or a poem and they say, I really like this for this reason. Mm. And, um, you know, to be honest, uh, I get a lot less 
blank faces and glazed over <laughs> expressions because I, I feel myself doing that as well when someone's saying a poem at me that doesn't allow me in I'm really trying hard to listen but my eyes are going to glaze over mm. if you don't grab me in that first minute or two mm. Mm. Mm, that's that's super interesting I've attended both performance poetry and also just just readings by authors that are more on the page, you know, in their writing. And it's, it's totally different, right? Because there is much more of an entertainment aspect to performance poetry than a reading of on-the-page poetry. Yeah, when I go to page poetry readings... I configure my expectations differently. Mm. So I'm not going to be upset if I don't get the same kind of entertainment that I would get from a poetry slam. Mm. I suppose the key is just knowing your audience. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and being conscious of your audience. So you can do different things in a page poetry reading than you can in a spoken word poetry performance and vice versa. Mm. So... Just being aware of that, I think, really goes a long way. Yeah, it really does. And they, they are suitable for different kinds of writers as well, because there are many poets who are not comfortable being a performer. They just want to read their poetry because it's, it's much more of a... Well, I, actually, I don't know how to describe it. It's just... It's a... I don't even want to say traditional setting, right? Because there are many poets who write concrete poems, for instance, that is very participatory in some ways that, that calls on to other senses because it's both visual as well as oral uh, experience when you go to a reading. So... That's also interesting. So I feel like there's definitely overlaps between the two, but you do find clumps of people who belong to one genre and clumps of people belong to another. Mm. And maybe that just speaks to my limited experience in mostly having gone to more performance-oriented events and uh, only a handful of page poetry readings. I don't know if that's also a consequence of the Sydney poetry scene. Mm -hmm. I feel like the more literary page-based events I've been to have always had at least a toe in the spoken word poetry world as well. Mm -hmm. And to get very far as a poet, in my experience anyway, in Sydney right now, you've got to sort of do both you've mm. got to do your time at the slams and you might be published in journals and whatnot and in anthologies i mean for me the things that i've been published in many of them have come from knowing the right person from the slam world mm. um who happened to be guest editing an edition or or something uh mm. that month so that's been my journey anyway and perhaps the scene uh, in the U.S. is is different just because it's bigger or more established. Yeah, I wonder because I haven't gone to many Australian um, open mics during this shutdown because <laughs> time difference. And I'm just like, I need my sleep. I must have my sleep. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear your perspective since you participated in that 
environment more. So thank you for that insight. Oh, you're welcome. The poem I actually brought that your poem reminded me of is one of the fewer poems that I have, which is a concrete poem uh, that has visual elements. And, mm. and I forget if I... I honestly can't remember if I meant to write it as a visual poet, poem or it's something that I decided to put in later on. But it also deals with family and issues mm. within the family and how that's formed me as the person I am. So I'm going to read that and then we can talk about it. I'd love to hear it. Thank you. It's called Reaching a Low. I am grateful for everything while fearful of everyone. With every thanks, I wonder when the recipient will extend a hand to take another when my attention has slipped into its own realm. The death rattle of fear must sound celestial. The tangential ideation beckons. But how much I have become my mother is another favor flourishing garden well watered. We come from a long line of failed women, the epitome of independence, having no one we dare to lean on. Supports break, buttresses are brittle. We are deaf to the splintering groans. They look so strong, books and covers. We are the magician's faithful audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I haven't read this before. I'm hoping this is why I'm like stumbling through it. Could be just the heat. You know what? I'm going to blame it on the heat. Blame it on the heat. Yeah. Let's... It's, uh, might as well make use of it. Yes. <laughs> I'm really curious about this poem. I can see the image of the flourishing garden well watered. You say my mother is another favorite. So I can see that that resonance with my poem, but are there other aspects of this poem that made you choose it as a partner to mine? Yeah, I, I feel like it is that uh, digging through one's family history and, you know, trying to figure out how we became the people that we are by looking at our previous generations because I also have a very <laughs> rocky relationship with my parents and I saw it in your poems uh, again because I have the benefit of reading your entire packet so I, I got a very well-rounded sense well a good sense of it even though the previous poem only talks about your grandfather but I think you still I feel like that stanza about your uncle and your mom was such a anchor in that poem that it really brings the gardening metaphor together. Mm. And that's why I was talking about the weaving between reality and the metaphor of gardening and the actual gardening. And, and so that's why, besides the fact that, I mean, I realized this poem only mentions garden like once in one line and goes on to many different metaphors. Um, but that, those were the two elements that made me thought, I think this particular poem would be a good reaction poem to yours. 
The poem is really interesting to me in, I think, the tensions that I read within it. There seem to be so many couplets of lines that um, that contrast each other. I mean, the first two lines are, I'm grateful while fearful. And your poem doesn't seem to follow as clear of a narrative arc. I think... I mean that as a compliment. I, I think it seems very deliberate where these tensions continue throughout the entire poem and yet by the end there is a sense of acceptance and, and release and optimism. How intentional was that when you were writing this? I, I write narrative poems as well. This is not one of them. In a way, it's almost like a peek behind the curtains of the thought process of a poet before it becomes a narrative, before it becomes it becomes smoothed out into a narrative. This is more about realizing when it, it's an observation about myself and then it becomes a search for the reason for that particular observation. I'm also going through a period especially during COVID shutdown and nothing else to do uh, of self-examination. Also, I, just over the past several years, I felt like there's been a repetitive pattern of encounters that made me look at what in my life is making me get on basically one hamster wheel after another hamster wheel. Even if they're decorated differently, they're still hamster wheels. Mm. For you, how do you draw the distinction between what pieces of writing become narrative poems and pieces of writing that take this form um, that you say are sort of a look behind the curtain into the process almost? I don't feel like I'm at a point where I'm doing it so deliberately, sometimes a narrative poem will just come out, or a mostly narrative poem will come out, and then I go and go back and edit it and reshape it so that you know it smooths out all the edges and it becomes much more of a narrative poem. And then there are poems like this where I'm just having a bunch of thoughts of what's going on. I thought even though they seem like they are sort of a quote poem, you know, of, of desperate um, thought processes that they're still about the same thing, which is how family shapes us. And so that's why to me it is still a cohesive poem, even if they are a, a more cubist approach to it. I like that. I like that uh, term, cubist approach. That really nicely captures something I was trying to express about this, the multiple perspectives and sort of a fracturing of a cohesive perspective where I'm reading this poem and I think, oh, every line or every couple of lines offers something quite different. Uh, and this embodies those contradictions I mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a really fascinating and evocative effect, I think, to kind of jam these things together and, like a cubist painting, present them to the reader simultaneously. 
You talk about the death rattle of fear. You say the death rattle of fear must sound celestial. The tangential ideation beckons. Those three lines to me really stand out. I think of this kind of vocabulary as $10 words when I'm doing my own writing. Mm -hmm. Things like tangential ideation, Mm -hmm. they're kind of less common words. So I I sort of think if I'm going to use $10 word, um, (laughs) there's going to be a real intention to it. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if that's also your process, but um, I'm just curious about those three lines. What are you saying there? Why did you choose to express it um, in those particular words? I've had that reaction to, to my use of uh, vocabulary that people don't necessarily associate with poetry. Um, mm. I think it's because I pay so much to get those words. That I'm like, I'm going <laughs> to put them in whenever possible. <laughs> yeah. And also, it is similar to that idea, really, of taking a cliche and breaking their association, the the association of the words in the cliche with the meaning that people usually associate with them. And that's another reason why I put in words that come from technical backgrounds, come from maybe even mathematics or science that just do not sound like they belong in poetry. And I'm like, hey, you can use those words in poetry as well. In terms of meaning, because in the first stanza, I referenced the fear, right? And I don't want to live in fear, both within just like the philosophical context and also my personal situation and I wonder how you know like my mom's trauma and how she raised me again similar echoing back to your poem about your mom's fears right and how that raised you um and how that sort of tenderized you to be a seeding ground for certain processes to to be more sensitive to certain ideas and I feel the same so I I think this is almost like an aside line um you know I'm I'm saying I'm sort of like I'm getting into this poem then I'm like pulling myself aside and say well the death rattle the death of fear must be amazing I would like that. That's my aspirational line in the middle of the second stanza. Mm. I love the way those words do flip our expectations. Um, A death rattle obviously being something horrific to hear, but the death rattle of fear sounding celestial, yeah, it's it's transcendent when fear dies. It's Mm. cause for celebration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talk about how much you have become your mother. And this is after, not in the poem, but just in our conversation, uh, mm-hmm. talking about the, the fear with which your mother raised you. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I'm not twisting your words there. Mm-hmm. Um, this also seems to be a sort of a cause of celebration, how much you've become your mother. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Well, for me, it's actually not a cause for celebration because I 
<laughs> very, very critical of my mom. We are very different people, despite the fact that we are blood related. <laughs> we act to things similar stimuli very, very differently. It is one thing that uh, actually uh, an ex had accused me of to, to actually hurt my feelings because he knew how much I hated the way that she reacts to things. Mm. Also, talking about it now, I realize how long I've hung on to that since he said those words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and especially if we, as children of our parents, uh, you know, are critical of our parents, one of the most scary and painful things is the realization that we have become them in some very unfortunate but recognizable ways. So, yeah, <laughs> that's one of the last things I am yet to accept that <laughs> I am becoming both my mom and my dad. <laughs> right, right. Especially the things that you're critical of, right? Mm. Yeah. So this is something that, that I frequently visited because, because I'm so fearful of that becoming a fact that in some way it has become a fact because I'm so concentrated on that. You, you know that that famous, uh, interesting book, uh, or and also film, The Secret, is basically yeah. yeah, the laws of attraction is almost like that, but in a very detrimental way. Yeah, just when you fixate on something so much, it it inevitably shapes you. <laughs> yes, yes. So that's why I call it another favor flourishing garden well water right because it's it's something that i keep visiting and because i keep visiting it it's like watering a garden and it's just making it become uh, obviously i'm not a gardener because I, I think just watering is going to make a garden flourish so. i see <laughs> see that's clever that's that metaphor is not what it appears to be at first glance. I like when a poem does that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it depends on the reader and their relationship with their parents as well, and also their expectations of people's uh, normal or um, average, <laughs> you would say, relationship with their parents. You know, because a lot of people have really good relationship with their parents. And when they read this poem, I think I think they would see it as a, as a positive, right? And, and if you expect to see that in, in poems about parents, you might see this as a positive. I'm like, this is not a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember doing a live performance, and it was actually the performance that the gardening instinct was a part of, mm -hmm. and a workmate came to watch it. And the whole set was really delving into my family history mm -hmm. and um, her reaction to that set really stuck with me. It was interestingly surprising and she seemed almost affronted by how confessional I had been. Mm -hmm. um, and she, I, I think she was shocked at how I seemed to be selling my family's dirty secrets for the purpose of entertainment or, mm. you know, my poetry capital. Mm. And uh, 
it's just a reaction I haven't had before, but it gave me an insight into what perhaps her relationship with her family is, one that's very different to mine. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that we can never really account for what the reader's going to bring to the words we've written with intention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think as your example illustrated, some of us, especially if we come from or if we hold on to certain cultural norms, like, like uh, I, I would say these Asian um, backgrounds where you're supposed to, you're supposed to <laughs> respect your parents, respect your elders, no matter what, take their word as if they're the words of God kind of <laughs> these sort of poems are shocking for especially for people um, coming from that background and and are holding on to those traditions and you know this idea of never airing your dirty laundry in public mm. such a taboo yeah. in Asian cultures um, I'm speaking from experience as well <laughs> um, but I think that's what makes these poems, like yours, like mine, so powerful because as well as being a self-examination, they defy the power structures of our families of origin where perhaps we were told not to air our dirty laundry and what happens in the family stays within the family. Even to put pen to paper and write these poems for ourselves, if not for a broader readership, I think is blaming some of that power back. And it's something I really love about a poem like yours, just the way that it functions in that sense. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's important, especially as bicultural, multicultural kids who are taught certain things from our family background, and then we are brought up in a completely different culture where certain things are okay to talk about to explore that tension in our writing, right? And and also decide for ourselves where on the fence or which side we want to land on, which combination worked better for us because we are not either or, we're both. Mm. Mm. I really like your image of a long line of failed women. And I wonder in what ways the these women fail? Is it in being too independent? Is it in not carrying on the customs of the generations before them? What kind of thinking goes into that line for you? I think this is another line where I, I feel like when I submit this poem, people might look at it as like, oh my God, you're calling independent women fail women. And I'm like, no, you have to look at the circumstances under which independent women are independent, right? Are we independent because we want to be independent? Or are we independent because we are forced to be independent? And I think if you look at the third stanza as a whole, what it's talking about there is the latter sense of being forced to be independent, partly because we have failed to get off the hamster wheel using a metaphor I used before, um, that we continue to ride these hamster wheels of different shapes and sizes, but they're still hamster wheels. And, and so that's something that 
I, I love your, you know, your reaction to it because it's not, I don't know how clearly it comes across because it does seem like, even when I was writing it, I think for people who are just reading it, especially just taking those three lines as they are, how it could seem. Mm. I did read The Independence as a virtue, and maybe given what you've just said, that's an oversimplification, but I'll say for the record, I did not think that independent women are a failure in some way. That's not how I read your lines. <laughs> Wait, how did you read the, those lines? I, I'm curious. Mm, um, failed women. Uh, a lineage of failed women. I read women as, I think, what our culture defines women to be, which is always too narrow and riddled with double standards um, and restrictive. So to be someone who fails at being a woman is to me virtuous, is something that is positive. And if a woman is meant to be this, if a woman is meant to be dependent or whatever it may be, then to fail at that archetype is to become independent, to become your own person. Um, so I actually read those three lines as a critique of what the, the culture uh, figures women to be, a critique of what the culture figures women to be, um, as well as kind of a patting yourself on the shoulder and saying, I'm independent, what of it? <laughs> yeah, I think it, it definitely can be read in both ways. and I feel like they are related in that they come from this same root of the patriarchy, right, is that we teach women to be certain ways and when women do not fall into those lines, I mean men as well, um, we, we teach gender conformity and if the gender people who uh, by appearance are labeled those genders do not fall in those lines, they are seen as failures in some way or abnormal in some way. And yeah, independence is one of them. At the same time, I think, again, looking at the first stanza as an entirety, it's trying to get to the bottom of the why. If society criticizes women for being independent, does it look at also itself at why women become independent? Or why, why women feel like they need to become independent? Right? <clears throat> Could we as a society learn to lean on each other more if we actually care about one another? Then maybe we can all lean on each other more. And, and I don't think of independence as a bad characteristic. At the same time, again, I want to look at the why, um, because the why is as important as the end result. We can't just judge by the end result as if some to say if something is good or bad, we also have to judge by the process by which something becomes that end result. Mm. You end the poem with the line, we are the magician's faithful audience. I wonder what does it mean to be a faithful audience of a magician? Because I read that line as 
I read Magician as someone who is uh, deceptive or casting illusions, maybe. But for me, that last image of the Magician is probably the most ambiguous one in the whole poem. Mm. Um, how is that a conclusion for this poem? Again, it, it goes back to the what I was saying before about how we judge the end results rather than what goes into it, the process by which that goes into it, right? Like, we... We love magicians um, because they they sell us illusions. It's a lie. It's basically a lie, and 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 we we love them again. It's it's a bit of simple simplification because there's a lot of skill that go into a good magician's uh, set and body control and all those those things and practice and and so just like the gardening metaphor right here, it's a simplification of it. But, you know, we have to, as as faithful audience of a favored magician, we have to basically say, okay, I'm not going to look behind a curtain. Okay, I'm not going to look up that trick and find out how it's done. I'm just going to enjoy that moment and that's it and never examine what goes behind it. And so it goes back to the, the previous or the beginning of the stanza where I'm talking about the independent women. I mean, the the magician itself is also talking about the supports, right? The supports that break, the buttresses that are brittle, which is why the women feel like they need to become independent rather than depend on people. And I think now that we're talking about it more, and it also helped me with my recall, is that I remember there was a particular line in a movie, but I don't think that was the only movie. There are several movies where independent women, women who have appear to have everything, all their ducks in a row, within the storyline of a movie is explored as somehow they are going through a hard time, but they're being blamed because they're not talking about it. And I'm like, yeah, but let's look at the reason behind why they're not talking about it, right? In, in reality. We don't talk about it because we don't feel like we can count on people. And, and so... Again, and and I always look at movies as an illusional process as well because again, it's it's a very uh, two-hour that simplification of life that really doesn't really mirror life and it sells a lot of false ideations of what people are. It perpetuates terrible stereotypes, so that. The third stanza has some of that in its origin. Mm. It's a metaphor that brings to light that dichotomy between product and process. And I think hearing you explain that now, it really frames the whole poem as a really clever examination of the process and its relationship to, to product. Mm. It's much more uh, cohesive than it appeared on the very first reading for me personally. Thank you. What's something in the poem that... Actually, let me, let me ask it this way. So often when I share my work, there are a couple of things in any given poem that an audience reaction will cluster around. And sometimes those are the things in the poem that I'm really proud of and I want the audience to notice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it makes me go, oh, I didn't mean for that to be the main thing. You're missing all the other 
great stuff I'm doing in this poem. Mm. Um, I want you to look at the other stuff. So is there something in your poem that you're really proud of? You're going, uh, yeah, this is, this was a great way to express it. This is a really clever thing I've done, but you don't generally get asked about that thing. Is there something that you want to unpack in the poem that I've missed? No, I, I don't. I write mainly for myself. Um, mm. I don't write with an audience in mind. I, I edit sometimes with an audience in mind. The origin of my poems always comes from, like, I need to express something. So there are poems where I wrote something and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like this poem, really like this poem, you know. <laughs> there are definitely those moments. I, I'm not sure with this if I have a particular favorite line or anything like that. I, I think one of the reasons I write the poetry that I do is to break people's normal associations with certain things. So in that, I'm, I'm proud if that happens. I don't know necessarily that I, I achieve that. At the same time, the poem exists because I wanted to write it. So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Um, two different kinds of, of writers. I, uh, <laughs> I really only write for performance these days. I write very little if I've got nothing coming up. And then the moment that someone books me in for something, I go, okay, well, I'm going to write something just for this performance. Um, who knows what's more sustainable? Probably your method. But, um, yeah, very different processes. Right, right. Yeah. And I think, you know... Again, it depends on the person, right? It depends on our needs and what's important in our lives. And it, as long as it works for our lives, it, it works. I'm, I'm not one of those people who say, you have to do it this way. I'm like, like you're a different person for me. So <laughs> whether or not that's sustainable, I don't know. Because when I write, I'm just in the moment of writing it. Sometimes I have uh, dry spells. Sometimes I have really good days when I write multiple poems. At, at some point in the past, I was a little bit worried when I, you know, would have, like, go a week without writing a poem. Like, what happened? What happened? Is this it? And partly that, again, has to do with the past because I have very um, prolific, uh, productive periods where I was writing a lot and then it just stopped. I just didn't write poetry. And so I do keep wondering, is this it? Is the tap turning off for good now for a decade or whatever? So I do wonder about that. But I feel like in the past few years that I am in this poem writing prolific stage again that I think I've learned some practices that can sustain it, even if it comes out more in uh, drips and drops. A friend of mine said that as long as you're being as creative as you want to, then there's no problem. Uh, for you, that might mean being consistent over the course of weeks. And if you're fulfilling that need in yourself, then that's great. For me, I'll go months without writing. And as long as I'm content with not writing during those months, then there's no problem. Yeah. But as you said, I know that the moment I get dissatisfied and thinking, I, I wish I was writing more, I should get back into that practice again, then, yeah, I need to find those practices that make the tap keep dripping or, or even turn on again. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's great that you can whenever there is, you know, you you are tapped for performances that you can just turn it back on again. I think it's it's great that you are able to do that. And again, you know, I feel like whatever works for you uh, or you feel like works for you is important uh, to recognize that we all recognize that within ourselves, what works for us and what doesn't and how we can sort of minimize the negatives and, and, and practice or make the positives more. I don't know why the word for cunt keep coming up, but yeah, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, fertile and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, ready for growing. Yeah. That's a nice full circle. Yeah. There you go. It's the gardening metaphor. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, it all came back. <laughs> <laughs> so before I let you go, um, I would love for you to tell us if you have any virtual uh, readings that you attend that you would recommend to people and also how we can follow you online. Well, my home poetry slam was always Parramatta Poetry Slam. These days it's called West Side Slam. Mm-hmm. And uh, with... New South Wales currently in COVID lockdown, any events they'd be doing would be digital. So if you search Westside Slam on Facebook, uh, anything they come up with should appear there. Mm-hmm. My socials are at Troy GHW, at Troy GHW, no spaces or underscores. And easiest way to find me is going to be on Instagram. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate getting to talk about our poems together. Thank you, Imogen. This was a real pleasure. Cool. cool. Once again, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next time.